Today we close the page on 1 Corinthians as we come to the end of chapter 16, this being Paul's longest letter that beats out uh, the Romans in the Greek by about 230 words, Uh, so just a little bit longer than Romans, Uh, and uh, we come to his close and his uh, his greeting at the end today, reading uh, beginning in verse 13 through the end in verse 24. You can find that on page 962 uh, of the ESVs. And a reminder uh, that, Lord willing, we will begin a study next week on the story of Joseph from Genesis, beginning in Genesis 37. So if you have a chance to read through that story this week in preparation for our studies together of what the Lord did uh, through that godly man and uh, saving many, uh, as he says later, uh, uh, please do that and prepare for our time together. But today... Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 through 24. And before we go again uh, to God's Word, let us go again in prayer. Please pray with me. O Lord, our God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have promised to make us wise unto salvation through Your Word. And we pray that You would cause that to happen. Uh, That uh, there might even be some who would come to salvation first uh, through this word, and those of us who recognize the salvation which your word preaches would grow into the realities of who we are in Christ, of who he is for us. Help us, gracious Lord, by your spirit. Speak, for your servants are listening, and grow us in faithfulness and godliness and love because of our time studying your word today and cause us to worship you in spirit and truth as we do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you do be done in love. Now, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May love be with you all. In Christ Jesus. Amen. You know, difficult goodbyes have a way of revealing and uncovering to us what really matters. We leave each week, Sunday by Sunday, with a handshake and a greeting. We'll see you next week. We can't wait to have another fellowship luncheon. Excited to see you, but those handshakes are always different uh, when someone is leaving our congregation. Maybe they're moving on to a job in another state and Perhaps this is the last chance you you have to tell them what their friendship has meant to you and 
And what a wonderful thing it's been to worship together and to pray together and to serve together and to be a part of God's body together. And it changes uh, the way that you say goodbye and how you realize how important they are to you. And how many of us live with the regret of having said a casual goodbye to someone that we didn't realize we would never see again. And you wonder, what would I have said if I knew that was the last time I would see them? And you, you think about it, and you imagine, these are the things I would have said, this is how I would have embraced this person, and it changes and it reveals what you would have said and what's really important to you in your relationships. Now, Paul's goodbye here at the end of 1 Corinthians is a lot like that. It shows us what is in the apostle's heart. It shows us how much he loves this church, even as I misread that last verse. My love, not may love, it's not a, uh, uh, a wish for them, but he is sending his love, and he's showing us how much he loves this church. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. And he shows his love for this church in the way that he strings together this list of important reminders that he has for them. One scholar has said that this reads like a chatty little section of Paul's letter. It might even seem disconnected, but his goodbye turns into something like a parent dropping off their child for their first semester at college. And one hug turns into five hugs, and a simple goodbye turns into make sure you get to class on time, and find a good church nearby, and make sure you call home every week. And Paul seems to have one more thing, and one more thing, and one more thing that he just has to tell the Corinthians, and that's what we see. But it all reveals something of Paul's heart, what he really cares about for the church. It's a snapshot of his desire for the Corinthians. But these verses reveal more than the apostle's heart. You know that Paul wrote by the inspiration of the Spirit. That means that all of this comes from God, not just from the apostle, though it is an accurate reflection of his own feelings and his own sentiments. But this is revealing to us the heart of the Lord for his church as well. What does God want for his church? What does he really care about in his church? And what does he tell us ought to be most important as we gather together? What kind of church does the Lord delight to call his own? I think that's what we see in this goodbye from Paul. And even though it might be a little chatty, even though it might seem disconnected, there is a unifying theme. Beginning and end, it's the importance, once again, we've seen it already in Corinthians, but it's the importance of love in the church. Now, there are a lot of things that pass for love these days. And so it's important that we go to this passage and say, well, well what kind of love? I think that's what we see in this passage, that the Lord delights in the church that is filled with love, but Paul wants to show us exactly what that looks like, and so we're going to look at four characteristics today of the church that is filled to overflowing with love. What will be the signs that the church is full of God's love and that we love one another and love the Lord? What does it look like for us to be full of love? Four characteristics. The first, in verses 13 and 14, is that the love-filled church is firm in faith. We should be firm in faith. Now, in these two verses, Paul is calling us uh, to a certain sense of spiritual fortitude. He wants to put a little bit of backbone in our Christianity and to prepare us for the reality of trying to maintain faithfulness in a world that is hostile to our faith. This is battle language. The first two of Paul's commands actually come from the language of the military. What does he tell us? He tells us to be watchful, to stand firm, and so we imagine maybe 
uh, the soldier who's stationed on guard duty, and they're constantly scanning the horizon. They're looking and they're prepared for any attack to warn others and to be uh, on the lookout, and they're watching, and they're standing firm. And so we imagine maybe the warrior in, uh, in combat with his feet planted, his body braced so the front line will not hold. Paul is preparing us for the battle uh, that we have in this life. It's a reminder that believing in Jesus is a difficult endeavor. It is warfare, as Paul says elsewhere. It's difficult to maintain faithfulness, maintain faithfulness in the Lord in this life. It's difficult because the gospel is not the kind of thing that comes naturally to us. It's not like water seeking the lowest level. That's easy. It just sort of happens. But, but there are lots of things in our lives and in the world around us and in our adversary, Satan, who would uh, keep us from believing in the Lord and maintaining faithfulness. There are a whole host of things that make maintaining faithfulness and being firm in our faith difficult for us. Consider a few of them. The fact that the gospel goes against established human reasoning, that makes faithfulness difficult. And we've seen this from the beginning of 1 Corinthians. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Everybody knows that dead men don't rise. Everybody knows that this whole idea of sin that you Christians talk so much about, it's just a societal construct by people with power to keep the masses in subjection. You can't tell me you actually believe all that stuff, do you? And we try to downplay the effect of peer pressure on our lives, but it's difficult to maintain faithfulness in something that everyone you know writes you off as a fool because you believe it. And that's hard, and it's difficult. It's difficult because of what happens in our own uh, ideas of ourselves. The fact that the gospel destroys our imaginations, that our lives are really very well put together, thank you very much. The gospel proclaims that Jesus came to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death and to be raised as the first fruits of the resurrection. And why did Jesus do all those things? Because we're a mess, because we don't have it together. Jesus came uh, to be raised because we are walking corruption. He came to die because we deserve to die. And all of our righteousness is like filthy rags, and that is a blow to our delicate pride that we coddle so much. All those things we like to tell ourselves so that we can look in the mirror in the morning and believe that we are accomplished and competent and secure. And we want to do the opposite of what the psalmist tells us to do. To say, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. The gospel calls us constantly to die to ourselves and our pride, and we don't like that, and faithfulness is difficult. It's hard to be firm in the faith in this life. And then there is our adversary, that prowling lion, who goes around seeking whom he may devour. And the gospel proclaims that he is finally defeated and you can be sure he's not going to take that lying down. And so faithfulness is difficult, folks. Actually, in our own strength, it's impossible. If we were left to our own devices with any of these things, the world and the flesh or the devil, we would be sunk. And Paul says you need to be strong, but not strong in ourselves, strong in the Lord. That's the military picture that he gave to the Ephesians. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And yes, the Lord promises that he'll, he'll give his strength to those who don't have any strength of their own. 
and He will sustain us, and He'll cause us to be watchful and faithful and firm. He'll cause us to grow into maturity, but the Lord has also ordained that even as He works in us, our spiritual struggle for faithfulness will still be difficult, and it will still be warfare. And so Paul says, watch out. Always keep one eye looking over your shoulder and scanning the horizon, looking for that prowling adversary, watching out for your creeping pride in the world and its scorn. Be on your guard, Paul says. Be firm in the faith. Don't act like children. What do children do? They flit around from one thing to another, and one interest here and then another interest there. And Paul says, no, act like men, grown men. Be like those who are firm and resolute, who have convictions and purpose. Prepare yourself for the reality that maintaining your faith in the unbelieving world is warfare. That's what Paul wants for us. He wants us to be firm in the faith. But he doesn't want us to be so firm that we run roughshod over other brothers and sisters who aren't quite as firm as we are. All of these things ought to be tempered by love, and we've seen that in Corinthians as well. Remember that discussion of food sacrificed to idols, and there are some there who are so firm in their faith, saying, oh, it's nothing, we can do whatever we want. And they're leading others who are weaker in the faith into sin. Paul says, no, you ought to do all things in love. Yes, be firm, yes, be resolute. Yes, be watchful, but do all things in love. That means that our engagement in Christian warfare isn't always just about holding the line. It's also about attending to the wounded. It's about looking out for those who are not as firm in their faith as we are. It's about seeking ways that we can use the strength that the Lord has supplied to us if we find ourselves strong in some area to minister to those who are struggling with the world and the flesh and the devil in ways that we might not be. It means not being exasperated with those who haven't attained to what we've attained to yet, but seeking ways that we can help and ways that we can be praying. That's what the Lord delights in. He delights when we are full of love and firm in the faith. That's the first point that we have today. Secondly, the love-filled church is devoted to service. And here Paul points uh, to a few examples the kind of firmness, the kind of love that we ought to have in the church. And he says, if you want to know what love looks like, take a look at Stephanus. Now, there is a little controversy in verse 15, where our ESV says that Stephanus' household were the first converts. Actually, the word that Paul uses is first fruits. He says that Stephanus, together with his household, were the first fruits in Achaia. And it could mean that they were the first converts. You know, Achaia is a big place, though. That includes the entire peninsula and all the cities that were south of Corinth, including Athens. And we know from Acts that Paul preached in Athens before he preached in Corinth, and that there were some in Athens who believed. And so he may not be saying that Stephanus and his household were the very first converts in the entire region. It may be so, uh, that he traveled through Corinth and then came back to Corinth, and Acts simply doesn't record that for us. But, But I think at least what Paul is saying that Uh, that they were the first fruits in the sense that they were the first to give themselves wholeheartedly to the ministry of the church. You know, he was in Athens for a while, and a few people were converted, but he didn't stick around. And maybe because nobody really gathered together with him, and we don't see any evidence of Paul returning to Athens or writing to Athens or talking to a church there, and yet he ministered for 18 months in Corinth, 
Corinth and came back at least a second time, perhaps a third time to Corinth. And so we know he had lots of interaction, and, and in part because there were some there that were devoted to the ministry, devoted to service. They were first fruits of what God was going to do. In the Bible, first fruits are always promises. It's a foretaste. It's, it's the first fruit from the harvest that tells you that the rest of the harvest is coming. And so he sees Stephanus and his household engaged in ministry and devoted to service, and he says, the Lord is working here. I can see something wonderful. And Paul says, we ought to be subject to those who labor in the church, who are devoted to service. The church ought to recognize those who serve. Folks, you might be aware that that is precisely backwards from the way that the Roman world liked to operate. The entirety of Roman society was built upon this, this huge structure of patronage. And there were patrons and there were clients. There were people with honor and there were people who served people with honor. It was a mutual relationship. Uh, the patrons would support the clients. The clients would promote the patrons. But the way that you got ahead in the ancient world was by gathering lots of clients to serve you and to do your bidding and to promote your name as far and as wide as they could. And they would write letters saying, so-and-so is my patron and he's coming to visit and I hope you can see him and I hope you put out the red carpet for him. And won't it be wonderful when my patron comes to visit? And you have all these people serving you. And so if you receive service, well, you were important. But if you gave service, not so much. And Paul says, it's backwards in the church. Who ought to be recognized? Who ought to be uh, subject? Uh, who ought we to subject ourselves to? Well, it's those who serve. And that's in keeping with the gospel approach, isn't it? The message of Jesus proclaims the Savior came to serve rather than to be served. The gospel proclaims that Jesus came as the one to submit himself to the will of the Father. The gospel calls us to die daily to our own importance, to our own desires. It calls us to, to lift high the name of Jesus by looking out for the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what Jesus said. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Let the leader become as one who serves. What does that mean? It means that those who serve in the church ought to be honored. It also means that those who serve in the church ought to be copied. There's a word play between verses 15 and 16. We see it here. Uh, they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And he says, be subject to such as these. Well, in the original, the words for devoted and subject are different forms of the same verb. If we wanted to draw that out and, and make it a little bit more clear, we might say something like, they have submitted themselves to service, and you ought to submit to them. That's an interesting way to put it. Submit yourselves to those who submit themselves. And it's like this strange dogfight to get to the bottom of the pile and the, the lowest rung on the ladder. But that's exactly what the gospel calls us to. Not always to be self-aggrandizing and climbing the ladder as high as we can, but seeking ways that we can serve one another. And folks, when we're talking about service, we're talking about practicality, real things, things you can see, the way that we put away the chairs and rearrange today, that's service, the way that uh, if we show up on a snowy day and, and there's someone out there who is a senior citizen and they're shoveling and you're there and you're 30 or you're 20, or you're 16, and you've got a good back and you can do it, you ought to be serving. We're talking about service. We're talking about practical matters. 
And Paul says the church ought to be full of people that are falling all over one another, trying to serve and trying to get to the bottom. And that's what Christ did. And so devotion to service looks a lot like Jesus. And it looks a lot like love. And the Lord loves it when His people are devoted to service. He delights in this church when it's full of love. Third point, the love-filled church is united in affection. You're firm in the faith and devoted to service and united in affection. Paul sends greetings from Ephesus, and that's all well and good. But then he goes a step further and he says, you also ought to greet one another. Now, if you're writing a letter, certainly you would send greetings. And in the ancient world where letters were few and far between and you couldn't even count on them, uh, you would jump at the chance to send your greetings to someone else. But it's a little more audacious to say, you ought to greet one another. And then he talks about this matter of a holy kiss. Now, don't get carried away here. I'm all for taking Scripture seriously, uh, for interpreting it literally. Uh, In New England, a holy kiss might be a step too far. Uh, We might content ourselves with a holy handshake. If you're from the Midwest, it might be a holy hug, a slap on the shoulder, something like that. But of course, in the Roman world, a kiss was perfectly appropriate. It was just a normal sign of affection and honor to someone else. And so maybe it was the European model where you would put your hands on the person's shoulder and you just touch cheeks and kiss the air. However it happened, uh, this is what they would do. And, and men would greet men like this and women would greet women like that. And it's perfectly fine. It's perfectly appropriate. And so in a sense, there's nothing, nothing revolutionary about this until you remember what's happening in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. I don't know about you, I find it awfully hard to kiss someone I'm quarreling with. (laughs) You're mad at your kids before bedtime, and there's no gentle kiss on the forehead. You put them in bed, you turn off the light, you say, good night, go to sleep. That's it. Or you're fighting with your spouse before they go off to work in the morning. And this is not the day that you write that little note on a sticky note and put it in their uh, their lunchbox that says, I love you, I can't wait to see you for dinner tonight. You don't stand by the door and wait for a quick peck as they go by. They just leave. You say, bye, see ya. When we don't have uh, those normal, appropriate signs of affection, it's a, it's a sign that there's something wrong in our relationships. So maybe it's a kiss for your spouse or a hug for your mother or a handshake for your neighbor. But when in the church we miss those things, normal, appropriate signs of honor and affection and fellowship It's a sign of something greater. It's a sign that whatever we are quarreling about is more important to us than gospel fellowship in Jesus Christ. And when we lose those normal signs of affection, it shows us that something's wrong. You might feel wronged or hurt. You might feel betrayed or misunderstood, and so you give the cold shoulder. Brothers and sisters, this ought not to be. This ought not to be. Because Christ, who has reconciled us to himself, has reconciled us to one another. And in the church, we ought to be united in affection. Maybe that means today you've got to swallow your pride and talk to somebody you would rather not talk to. Maybe it means you need to let go of a grudge that feels so good to hold on to. But this is what the church looks like when we're filled with love. We're united in affection. Now, how do we grow in affection? That's difficult, isn't it? We're a church that is full of acquaintance. 
but affection is difficult. And maybe for us it's hard because you live maybe an hour away from somebody else who's sitting in the same room with you. You see each other only once a week, and maybe you get to cross paths in our time between Sunday school and the service, and you get to share a donut or a coffee together. Maybe you see one another. And so how do we grow in affection for one another? Well, look no further than Aquila and Prisca. Here is an amazing couple who in Scripture are always mentioned together, by the way. In the book of Acts, uh, Luke prefers to call her Priscilla, and Paul almost always prefers to call her Prisca, but it's the same couple. And we know that in Acts, they opened their home to Paul when he came because they were of the same trade, and they engaged in hospitality. We know that they traveled with Paul to Ephesus. We know that they taught Apollos the truth of the gospel, but we find from Paul's letters that at least in Ephesus here, and then in Romans we find, they're hosting house churches, hosting a house church in Ephesus, hosting a house church in Rome, opening their home to Paul in Corinth. What's one way that you can grow in affection for brothers and sisters in Christ? Open your home for hospitality. Hospitality sounds big and scary sometimes. You've got to clean your house. You've got to clear your schedule. You've got to think of something to make. You've got to invite the people. And it feels like it's all just too much. But it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be huge. Try it. Open your home for a dinner or a small group or a play date or a prayer meeting or something. I promise you, you'll be amazed at the way that your affection grows for the brothers and sisters that you meet with week after week. There is something organic and natural that we miss in our schedule-packed lives when we don't see one another throughout the week and then we come together and we expect to be lovey and happy and brothers and sisters in Christ and see you next week. You don't have to be best friends with everybody in the church. You don't have to put on Christmas dinner, although there are some in the church that do that, and we're so thankful for you. But open your home. Take the Aquila and the Priscilla model. You'll be amazed at the way uh, that you grow in affection in the church. That's what the church looks like when they're full of love. We're united in affection. One more, and I think Paul has saved the last characteristic, uh, the most important one for last. It comes to us not by way of a positive command, but rather uh, as a warning. Stronger than a warning, it's a curse. It's this apostolic anathema. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him be damned to hell, is what Paul is saying. And it seems almost like it doesn't fit. Because here we are talking about love and affection and greeting and service and firmness and faithfulness and all these good things, and Paul utters the most dreadful curse that could be uttered. Of course, it does fit. It does fit because Paul knows that it's all too possible to approach our lives in Christ and our lives in the church with a checklist. Here are all the things that I need to do and all the things that I need to be to be right in the church and right with God. Are you firm in the faith? Check. Are you devoted to service? I sure am. I'm there and I'm setting up every time the church doors are open. Are you united in affection? I love my brothers and sisters at Redeemer. And so we can think we're doing pretty well. And we've got our little checklist and it's all just, it's just outward conformity with an unmoved heart sometimes. It can be. All these things are good but not if we're putting the cart before the horse. Not if we're forgetting the horse entirely. And I say that as, as reverently as I can, comparing 
Christ and salvation to a horse. But often we, we content ourselves with conformity and an unmoved heart. It's like the kid, the child in the church, the good kid. They dutifully go through all the motions. They do all the chores, they do all the homework, they listen to the parents, they show up to worship most weeks. But the reason they do all that is because that's how you keep things quiet at home. That's how you get ahead in life. You do what's expected and you go through the motions. And all the while, they're simply waiting for that moment that they can be free and done with all of this stuff. And the heart doesn't move an inch, although the hands are busy and the feet are going and they're showing up and they are exactly where they ought to be at just the right time. Paul knows that it is perfectly possible to go through the motions in church and to do it for all the wrong reasons. He knows that you can be affectionate because you are aware that nobody likes a disagreeable person. I'll be affectionate because nobody will want to be around me otherwise. He knows that we can serve others because in the church at least, that's how you get praise. Thank you for serving. Thank you for being there. And people will come alongside in a way that might, they might not in the world. And, and you'll be recognized because you're trying to get to the bottom. He knows that it's possible to fight the good fight of faith because you found something you like to argue about. And it gets your blood pumping. And it's even a little bit controversial, which is always good. If you can be the outlier and the underdog and you can stand for something on principle, that makes you feel good. And we can do it for all the wrong reasons lest it should happen in the church that we walk away from 1 Corinthians and we think that our Christian life is about service and stewardship and gifting and, and unity and feeling good about the way that we interact with one another. Paul has given us this morning. You don't have to take uh, Paul's word for it, though you ought to. Jesus gives us a similar warning. Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's missing there? On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, and they will have works in abundance to boast of. And we did all of this stuff, and he'll say there was no relationship. I never knew you. We don't have to go down the trail very far to know that knowing someone is a very intimate term in the Bible. It's not something that we take lightly, but there is this interaction, this knowing between uh, the believer and their Savior this love and this fellowship and this intimacy. And on that day, Christ will say, you may have done lots of things in the church, but I never knew you. It's dreadful and it's frightful and fearful. Who will enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, the one who does the will of my Father. It's worth asking, what's the will of the Father? John chapter 6, this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Isn't that what love is for our Savior? To listen to His words, to obey His commands, 
to believe what he's told us, that if you look to him and believe, you'll be freed from your sins and the guilt that follows them. And you will have eternal life and you'll be raised up. Is that not what love for Jesus is? To obey when he calls us to look and to believe. And he says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who loves me and faith and, and believes in me will be raised up and they will enter the kingdom of heaven. Folks, if you are still under the curse of anathema for your sin and have not loved the Lord Jesus Christ and have not looked on him in faith, do that today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. This is what Paul wants us to have as we end. Not just that the church is a wonderful place to be because the people are nice and they love you and they'll be affectionate. All of those things are good, but if you have no love for the Lord, you will be cursed when he comes again. And so believe on the Lord. Be established in Jesus. That's the final mark of a love-filled church, that we should love the Lord, that we should be established in him. This is God's will for us. We spend a lot of time trying to figure out, what does God want me to do? And which decision should I make? And where should I go? And what should I do? And the Lord says, this is my will for you. That you look on the Lord Jesus and receive salvation. This is what he delights in, in his church. We should have hands and hearts that are full of love for the Lord. We believe in his promises and rejoice in his fellowship that we long for his return as Paul longs. Come, Lord Jesus. That we're established in Him. And the church that is full of love will be established in Jesus. And all of these other things that we're talking about today, the Lord will see that those grow as well. So let us go now to the Lord in prayer, thanking Him for the Savior He's given us and rejoicing in His love and asking that He would grow us in love and establish us in Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, our God, we thank You for this picture of our Savior. We pray that you would grow us in love of him, cause us to be like those who sit at his feet and long to hear his words. Thank you for this word that we have studied over the last year and a half uh, from Paul to the Corinthians and from Paul to us and from your heart to us. Help us, O Lord, to grow as a church in all of these ways. And most especially help us to grow in Jesus, in love for him, because we are established in him in love for one another, O oh Lord, establish our hearts blameless in Jesus Christ at the coming of the Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.